Um, I, for a number of years, oh, my name is Jeff, those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors, most of my uh, responsibilities are in Hinsdale, but I get to be here about once a month, it's always a privilege. Uh, for a few years, I was uh, uh, working at an Anglican church in Sydney, and the custom was to have a reading from the Old Testament, from the Epistles, and from the Gospels. I bring that up because, actually, um, the scripture reading for today, I don't know what happened, is from Luke. So you've now heard the Epistle, and now I'm going to read for you, uh, read for you from Luke chapter 7. Uh, apologies for that. I mean, why should I apologize? Hearing more scripture is never going to be a bad thing. Um, so if you already have your Bibles open, that's great. Uh, and I invite you to then to, uh, and it was so wonderfully read, so it was already very edifying. I don't know if I can add to that too much. But I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. And it's going to be uh, verse 27 through 38. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 38. And so uh, these are Jesus' words where he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful, and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put to your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Please join with me in prayer. Father, you have already uh, been present among us as we have gathered together, but we pause again to remember before you how utterly dependent we are upon you. Uh, we are people who need to hear your word, we need to see Christ more clearly, be made more like him, and we cannot do that apart from your spirit. And so we ask again that we would be filled by your spirit, that you would enable me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word, and you enable us to hear what you have to say to us, that more and more we would be your distinct people, your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's already alluded to in prayer. Uh, it's been a rough few weeks for our country, when you say. It's, it's been ugly. Um, I was reading, uh, David Brooks, a columnist, uh, wrote this on Friday. He said, over the past few years, hundreds of organizations and thousands of people, myself included, have mobilized to reduce political polarization, to encourage civil dialogue, to heal national divisions. 
The first test case for our movement was the Kavanaugh hearing. It's clear that at least so far, our work is a complete failure. And we understand what he's saying. Well, we, I mean, the divisions are profound. I find it striking, and maybe you have as well, that before I even read someone's opinion, if I know they're on the right or on the left, I know what they are going to decide about whether Judge Kavanaugh is guilty or innocent. Almost 100% if you're Republican, he's innocent. Almost 100% if you're Democrat, he's guilty. There is no in-between. The division is profound. But even more troubling is just how uncivil the discourse is. It's, it's ugly, isn't it? I mean, we've seen conservatives, when, when someone has come forward and spoken of sexual abuse, openly mocking that person. And we've seen progressives not, not just questioning whether a person is worthy of being in the Supreme Court, but, but vilifying him as if he is evil incarnate itself. And it's not just to these two figures that we see this incivility. It's, it's towards each other. If you disagree with me, it's not just that we have a polite disagreement. It's that you are evil. If I'm progressive and you're conservative and you disagree with me, that means you are sexist and you are conniving. And if I am conservative and you're progressive, you are liberal, I mean, you're liberal, you're manipulative, you're deceptive. That There is no room for there to be agreement on some things and disagreement on others and, and wrestling together. It is uncivil, it is divided, it is ugly. Now this isn't the first time our nation has wrestled with some difficult issue, of course, but it does seem like we are equipped with less than ever before to figure out how to work this out together. Not wanting to idealize the past, because the past has all sorts of problems, but I think there is some degree of truth that if we go back a few decades or a few centuries, there was more common ground. Certain things that everyone agreed on, whether it was about what human virtue might look like, or whether it was idea of the absolute truth of certain things, things that we could then kind of use to mediate as we're trying to figure out how to negotiate our disagreements. And to at least some degree, there was some degree of trust. A belief we're, we're all in this together. We're, we're ultimately seeking the same things. But there's none of that now. There's almost nothing that we say we can at least agree on this. And there is truly no trust. And as one other columnist wrote, when there is no trust, all that you have left is the bare use of force. And that's what it is, right? Right now, both sides the conclusion is if we can't negotiate, if we can't understand each other, I've even read someone say we're basically living out the Tower of Babel right now where there's absolute inability to hear each other at all. And when that's the case, all that you have left is a power grab. All that you have left is to say, I need my tribe to be in control. It's us against them. It's winner take all, it's good versus evil, and whatever my opinion is, I'm the good side and they're the evil side, and the only solution is to make sure we're the ones in control so that we can make sure that whatever we think is true is what happens. It is a power grab. That's ugly. And I think the question that maybe some of us have been asking, I know I've been asking, so what, what is the Christian response to this? What is our calling? And it's been interesting reading some people's opinions. There are some who basically say we 
We can't be naive. We are going to have to get dirty to be able to make things work the way we want them to. There was one uh, evangelical leader who wrote this. Conservatives and Christians need to stop electing nice guys. They might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs street fighters at every level of government because the liberal fascist Democrats are playing for keeps and many Republican leaders are a bunch of whims. Now just think about that for a moment. I mean, clearly he's embodying what I just said. We are playing for keeps. Well, what is he saying? He's saying nice people who would make great Christian leaders. So I'm trying to think, what does nice mean in this? I think he's talking about Christian virtues such as humility, kindness, long-suffering, forgiveness. They might make great Christian leaders, but they are wimps, and we need something else. We need people who are not virtuous, who are not ethical, who are street fighters, because at the end, all that matters is the power grab, and we can't let the other guys win. Is that right? How would Jesus respond to this? I don't think we have to speculate. I think we actually know the answer, and I think it is in the very passage that I just read in Luke chapter 6. This is, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's a famous section, you know, one of the most famous sermons ever preached. And, and oftentimes when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we think of it in terms of how I need to do things differently. There's instructions, and we think individualistically, how can I change? And that's fine to some degree. But it's actually missing what Jesus is doing. When Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount, he is giving a political manifesto for a new society, the new community, the new kingdom that he is building. See, in the Gospel of Luke, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we have a fairly significant moment. Jesus takes his disciples, and he finds 12 men, and he appoints them apostles. 12 apostles, and that number means a lot, because the very people of God began with 12. The 12 sons of Jacob were the founding members of the people of God of Israel, and now Jesus is taking 12 new founding members, and he's saying, I'm starting a new society, a new people. I am building a new community that is going to be different. And the Sermon on the Mount is saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to be this people that are my people, my society. And what does he say? Well, we've just heard it. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. I wonder if people, when they first heard Jesus say this, did a double, if they did a double take. Because... This outstrips anything that they would have heard before. Love your neighbor? Yes, I understand that. Love family? There's a strong emphasis on being loyal to your, to your tribe, to your clan. Love the people of God? Yes. Love your enemies? You know, it's interesting. If you look in the first three centuries of Christian writings, writers who have come in three centuries after Jesus, do you know the verse that is quoted most? It's this one. Because I think this was understood as being so unique, so distinctive, that it defined what makes Christians different from everyone else. That we are those who love our enemies. So, so when Jesus says, love your enemies, what does he mean? Well, he, 
he gives us clarity by multiple commands after all kind of defining what he means by that. Who are our enemies, we might ask? Well, Jesus says they are those who hate you. So it's not just people that we dislike. That's hard enough, right? If we don't like someone, they feel like we're wanting to be a distant, but at least we can kind of work within ourselves. But it's more than that. It's people who dislike us. Have you ever tried building a relationship with someone you know who hates you? That's the enemy. He says, these are people who curse you. It's not just that they dislike you. They actually desire bad things to happen to you. They will rejoice in your downfall. And they don't just curse you. They abuse you, Jesus says. That is, they are actively assaulting you, whether physically or whether with cruel words or whether it's a co-worker who is just making things hard for you. They are against you. This is what Jesus means by enemies. To, to speak the obvious, when Jesus is talking about an enemy, he is not just saying about someone who gets on our nerves, someone who is annoying. Yes, we're called to love people like that too. But Jesus is calling for something more. He's talking about those who make our lives miserable. Those people who might keep us awake at night with anxiety, with the idea of the conversation we've had with them or that we're going to have or the pain they're causing. Jesus says, love them. I mean, how are we most likely to respond to someone we know is our enemy like this? It, it's to condemn them, isn't it? Like, if I have been hurt by someone, the first thing I will do is I will recognize what they have done is evil, and then I will recognize that who they are is evil, and then therefore I will excuse myself the fact that I don't like them and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And Jesus says, judge not. He's speaking exactly to this. Judge not, lest you be judged. Don't condemn, lest you be condemned. That's not the way to respond to the person who's wronged you. Though you might feel like you're justified, that is not my way. That's not the way of my society. My way is to love your enemies. So what does that mean to love your enemies? Well, again, he, he doesn't leave this ambiguous. Do good, he says to those who hate you. Not, not just when someone hates us and we're wanting to be mean to them. He's not just saying, leave them alone. I think we sometimes feel pretty good about ourselves. If we know someone's really cool and we just say, you know what, I'm not going to stick to the level. I'm going to keep them you know, at arm's distance. But Jesus doesn't actually say that. He says, go beyond that. Do good to those who hate you. Actively give of yourself even to the point of it being sacrificial so that you can seek their well-being. You know, a few years ago, um, and perhaps uh, some of you were following this, the, the organization Chick-fil-A came under fire uh, because of its association with some conservative, when it came to same-sex marriage, and so, so some gay rights activists were really attacking Chick-fil-A. And, and there was something that sometimes it even kind of became ugly. And so it was interesting, uh, a few months after this started coming out, where a gay rights activist by the name of Shane Windemeyer wrote this column in the Huffington Post, and it began this way. He said, I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded, all-American epicenter of college football at the Chick-fil-A Bowl next to Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy as his personal guest. It was among the most unexpected moments of my life. Now, what happened? 
Well, as these attacks came, the, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, rather than kind of lashing out against, he actually found the phone call of one of the leaders of this group. And he gave him a phone call. And he didn't defend himself. He didn't, he didn't kind of try to stop him. He actually asked questions. He sought to understand, to listen. This obviously matters a lot to you. Tell me more about it. Over weeks, Shane says, they texted, they talked. Sometimes it was awkward, but it was good and it was genuine. And as a result of this person experiencing hatred, but seeking to do good, friendship. Jesus says, that's the way of my society. Do good to those who you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This was illustrated powerfully also a few years ago in Charleston, South Carolina. Another story that we might be familiar with. When Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston had a Wednesday night Bible study. And this, it's a largely African-American church, but a white man came in on the Wednesday Bible study by the name of Dylan Roof in his 20s. He was welcomed in for an hour. He participated in the Bible study discussion. Until so when it was time for prayer, he stood up, pulled out his gun, and he shot and killed nine people for no other reason than they were black. It was tragic. Can you imagine welcoming someone who is different from you in, trusting, and then that trust being utterly betrayed? But what is utterly striking is how, how they responded. A few days later, when he came before the court, and they had the, the, the family and friends of those who were killed had a chance to speak directly to Dylan Roof, One, uh, they, they spoke not just of anger, although there was hurt, but of forgiveness, and of how they were praying for him. One woman who was grieving the loss of her mother said to Dylan, I forgive you. You took something very precious for me, and I will never talk to her again in this life, I will never hold her again, but I forgive you, and may God have mercy on your soul. Jesus says, that's, that's the way of my society, to bless those who abuse you. He also says, when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, I think it's helpful to understand that a strike on the cheek was a form of insult. It was something that you would do to demean the other person. How, how are we most prone to act when we are being demeaned, when we are being insulted? It's fight or flight, right? Either we will go right back and say something just as cruel to the other person, or we might just decide after we've been hit to just kind of walk away. Jesus says, neither of those is an option. When you are struck and you are turned away, turn right back. Even making yourself vulnerable so that you might get insulted again because you are committed to a relationship with this person even though they have hurt you and even though they might hurt you again. Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, my suspicion is you agree with me that this, what Jesus is talking about here is not a love that comes naturally to us. I mean, there are forms of love that we do express naturally, but if we really look to the depths of it, we will realize that so often the love that comes natural to us is love where we expect some kind of return on our love. 
So if you are walking into a room, say it's a party, and you see a whole bunch of people, who is the person or group of people you are most likely to go to? Do you see the person who is awkward by themselves, who really is not nice to you and unpleasant to you, and you say, that's the person I'm talking to? Or do you go to the person that you know, hey, they're friendly and they like me? Which one will you choose? Who, who are you more likely to have over to your house for a party or for a dinner? Is it someone who is really different from you? Or is it someone who is a lot like you? See, somewhere in the back of our minds, and it's rarely conscious, there is calculus that's going on where we're wondering what the return on our investment of love is. Now, I'm kind to a coworker because I want them to be kind to me. I invest a lot of energy in my family, at least in part because I know my life will be better if my family's happy. I do a friend a favor because I want them to like me. And, and our friendship to get deeper. And maybe if I need a favor sometime, I can ask him. There's a certain degree that we are constantly loving, pursuing a return on our investment. And Jesus raises the question, if that's how we love, is that really love at all? So Jesus says in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? By benefit, he's saying, how is that praiseworthy? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you are just loving people that will give you a return on your investment, is that love at all, or is that just self-love? That's the love that comes natural. And let me say, if that's what we define love as, then we actually live in a very loving country. Because even though we know that people are cruel to those outside of our tribe, if you're in my tribe, then I am on your team and I got your back. Because you agreeing with me makes me feel better about myself, and I can make you feel better about yourself, and we can know that we're together. Is that love? We know why we do that, right? Because that's safe. We know that if we step outside of our tribe and, and try to care for those who are different from us, especially those that we know disagree with us and dislike us, at best, we will love without getting anything back. At worst, we will love and get pain back. So why would we do that? Why don't we just be kind to those we know will be kind to us? But Jesus says, no. That's not the way of my people. My way, verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Not, not those you know will be kind to you, be kind to them, but as you want people to act towards you, you initiate, you start. Another way of putting this is be to the world what you want the world to become. Be to the world what you want the world to become. Be kind before you know that you will receive kindness. Show respect to people who do not respect you and might never respect you. How, how do we want this world to be? Do not we long to see civility? Do not we long to see respect and kindness? Don't we want to see people caring for each other and working through differences and trying to kind of find a unity so that we can work together? That's what we long for, isn't it? 
We are not going to be able to change our society in that way. The best we can do is what we're already doing, and that is to be praying that God would change. But we can do one other thing, and that is we can be the community we want to see the world become. We can be towards each other those who respect and love each other, and we can be towards the world what we long to see the world become. Do you see how different that is from our tendencies? There's, there's a couple of tendencies that we see church leaders expressing. One we've already mentioned is for us to be in this world, we're going to have to fight fire with fire. We're going to have to get dirty because the world is dirty. And Jesus says, no, that is not an option. You are my people. You are different. And you are not called to be like everyone else. Other leaders who are just feeling so fed up with a world that seems so messy, it's like, you know what? We're just going to leave. We're going to isolate ourselves. We're going to be the people we're supposed to be. And Jesus says, that's not an option either because I'm calling you to love your enemies, to be towards others the world that you want to become. Now, as we do this, it may well be that because we are salt and because we are light, we'll actually see the world beginning to reflect this in some ways, but that might not happen. But ultimately, that's not the reason we're doing it. The reason we're doing it it's because that's who our Father is. And that's where Jesus goes, isn't it? He says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. When he's talking about the ungrateful and the evil, who is he speaking? You were here last week. Do you remember the story of Hosea? Do you remember how God's people, even though God is faithful and loving to his people, how his people continue to cheat on him and turn away from him and show complete lack of gratitude? He's talking about his people that he shows kindness to. He's talking about us. Romans 5, what does it say? While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, God gives his son. He didn't wait to send Jesus until we finally said, God, we love you. Thank you so much. Could you please send us Jesus? No. He sent Jesus when we were his enemies. He, he did good to us when we hated God. When we were cursing Jesus on the cross, he was praying, Father, forgive. When we abused him unto death, he gave his life that we might have life. And even now, when in our faithlessness we insult Jesus by how we live and by how we speak, he doesn't turn away from us, but he continues to turn back, turning the other cheek again and again, utterly committed to his relationship with us. That's how our Father is. That's how Jesus is. And he says to us, that's how you, my people, are called to be. Not because it might make any difference in the world, but because that's who I am. Now I wonder, as we're wrestling with this, as we're really thinking through what it means to love our enemies, what it means to seek to be to the world what we want the world to become, are you feeling in any way overwhelmed? Because I am. If I'm honest, I have a hard enough time loving the people who love me back. To love my enemies, truly to love, is it even in us to do that? 
The answer is no. On our own, it isn't. It will never come naturally to us, but it is in Christ. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you are in Christ, and all that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. In Christ, you have forgiveness. In Christ, you now are made children of God. And in Christ, you now, by His Spirit, are given the enemy-loving love of Jesus. In our church a few weeks ago, we spoke about, you know, we've been asking this question, what does it look like to pursue growing in love? And actually, the, the Romans 12 passage was this, the text that we looked at, and, and we kind of saw kind of three parts to this, that, that we need to believe, that we need to surrender, and that we need to obey. We need to believe, you and I, if we want to be able to love our enemies, we first need to believe that God loves us, that God loves us beyond our ability to comprehend, that God loves us because that's the only way that we can be freed from fear, and fear keeps us from loving. We need to believe. We need to surrender. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Say before God, all that I am and all that I have is yours, because you and I cannot truly give ourselves to others until we have first given ourselves to God. Believe and surrender and then obey. Obey as we hear these utterly daunting and terrifying words of Jesus. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Obey feebly, weakly, uncertainly, <coughs> and we will discover as we step forward in obedience that the Holy Spirit begins to grow in us a love we never knew we were capable Because we are in Christ. And, and Jesus says, even as you do, even as it feels like you empty yourself, let me tell you two promises that I have. And this is what I'm closing with. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. You will get nothing in return if you love, as I call you, from the people that you're loving. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Do you hear that? He's not saying, don't ever expect anything in return. Don't expect anything in return from the people you're loving, but your reward for me will be great. I don't even really know what that means. But I know it's true, and I, I think at least what we can say, whether it's talking about how as you learn to love this way, you will find a joy that you do not expect, I'm sure that's part of it. Or whether you will feel the delight in knowing you are being more like God, that's part of it. Or if we're just talking on the last day, and we hear God's, well done, good and faithful servants. What Jesus is promising is that as we take this step to do something so terrifying as to love our enemies, on the last day we will not look back with any regret, but we will only look back with joy. That is the promise. But there's a second promise where it says, and you will be sons of the Most High. And I think what he's saying is, you will show yourself to be sons. A son is someone who looks like his father. Jesus is saying, as we take these steps, and as we seek to do what seems impossible to us, and the Spirit works through us so that we love our enemies, when people look at you, they will see God. They will see the resemblance to the Most High God who loves His enemies, who is merciful to those who hate them. Can you imagine a higher privilege than for us 
to be showing the love of God to the world around us. Jesus says, love your enemies. Believe that God has loved you. Surrender yourself to God and obey as he calls you to love, to do good to those who hate you, to be to the world what you want the world to become. Because that, Jesus says, that's the way of my people. That's what it means to be part of the family of God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, having just, having just spoken about this, Lord, you know how personally uh, inadequate I know I am on my own and how inadequate we are. We are the people you've called, but Lord, our, our sinfulness is still so deep. And our self-protectiveness is, is so much there. We pray, Father, that your spirit would enable us to do what is impossible on our own, that you would show us how to love those who do not love us, to show kindness to those who are not kind. Would you enable us, please, to be a people who is light and salt to the world as we show what your love and what your mercy looks like to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.